The scripture reading this evening is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17. I'm going to read verse 2, 3, and 4. The Bible reads, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So we've begun a series of sermons on Sunday mornings that will have to do with our Reading in Sync program. I've uh, heard from a number of you this week that you've been keeping up with the reading. That's great. There are some new handouts in the foyer. If you didn't get one, or it's on the website, on the church website as well, the readings for this coming week. And so in the mornings, on Sunday mornings, the lessons are going to coincide with what we've been reading that week. On Sunday nights for the rest of the year, Every lesson is going to be, at least the lessons I preach, are going to be stated in the form of a question. Vital questions that need to be answered. And they're questions that need to be dealt with by everybody. Questions like, should I be a Christian tonight? Or questions like, can a person fall from grace? Or questions like, who or what is the Holy Spirit and who and what does he do? So as you think about these questions, they demand answers. And so on Sunday nights for the rest of the year, we're going to be dealing with questions that people need to ask and seek out the answers to in Scripture. So the question tonight we're going to deal with is this, should I be a Christian? Six or so years ago, my family and I moved to the Katy area, and I've got to tell you, this was a culture shock for me. And one of the reasons why it was a culture shock for me was because I would go to the grocery store and I would hear five or six different languages just walking through the grocery store. I later came to find out that they've done statistical studies and they, they've analyzed uh, demographics. And they say, this is what I heard, that Fort Bend County, just south of here, is the most diverse, demographically diverse county in the United States. People from all over the world have come to this area and so when I walk through the grocery store, I shop at Costco because my kids eat a lot. So I've, I've got to buy a lot usually. But when I go to Costco down here at I-10 and 99, there's not a time that I go to that place that I don't hear and see people from other cultures. People who I know by the way that they look, by the way that they dress, by the way that they speak, I know they are from a different, very different religious background than I am. And as I think about those people, one of the questions that I always reflect on is this. How do you start a conversation with somebody that comes from another country, that grew up believing in a completely different religion than you believe? How do you start a conversation with somebody like that? And, and even if you just keep it in our own nation, even if you just keep it in, in the United States of America, people who've grown up in this country, did you know that the fastest growing group of religious demographics in our country is the nuns, the people that don't believe in any kind of religion? 
How do you have a conversation with somebody like that? There are a lot of people, by the way, that believe that if you were to become a Christian, you would have to check your brain at the door. That if you decide that you want to obey the gospel and you want to follow Jesus Christ and he's going to be the person that you serve and that you follow for the rest of your life and you're going to depend on him and trust him for salvation, there are people who genuinely believe that you've just got to give logic and reason a goodbye. I'm not going to listen because this, the, I, I'm not going to pay attention to what's true and what's right and what, what logic teaches. I'm just going to be a Christian. I'm going to check my brain at the door. Intellectual, nothing. But as you look at the book of Acts especially, and as you look at the Bible in general, the scripture indicates that there are some very, very good reasons to be a Christian. And so the way I'm going to answer this question tonight is to appeal to people's heads, not so much their hearts. Sometimes as preachers, we've got to appeal to people's hearts. We've got to press upon people the idea that they have wronged God and that they need to come to Him and depend on Him for salvation, and the time is urgent and there needs to be something that changes in my life, and we're appealing to people's hearts. But sometimes there's a place for preachers to appeal to people's heads. That's what this lesson is geared towards. And I'm on good ground when I appeal to people's heads because of what you see happening throughout the New Testament. For example, the passage that Aldo just read a moment ago. In Acts chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, that's one of the chapters we read this week, by the way. The Bible says that Paul went into the synagogue and notice he reasoned with people from the Scriptures. There's no checking out intellectually. There's, there's investigation and there's analysis and there is reason and logic that's happening when Paul preaches the gospel to the Jews, reasoning and showing and proving to people that Jesus is the Christ. And that's not the only place. I'm inviting you now. Open your Bibles to Acts 18. Look at verse 4. Acts 18 verse 4. It's not as if the book of Acts just brings this up once, that there's reason and logic and persuasion that takes place when the gospel's preached. The Bible says in Acts 18 verse 4, notice that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried his best to persuade Jews and Greeks. There is a time for preachers to appeal to people's hearts. It needs to happen in our preaching. But there's also a time and a place for all of us as Christians to appeal to people's heads and to talk to them about very important questions that Christianity can answer in a way that no other belief system can. And that's what Paul's doing. He's reasoning with people, both the Jews who had a belief system and the Greeks who had a very different belief system. Paul could bring the gospel into a place and he could challenge the way people were thinking because he understood what God's truth is all about. In Acts 19 verse 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading people about the kingdom of God. And that's interesting that it says he reasoned and persuaded about the kingdom of God. Paul preached about the church and he preached about the importance of the church and the vital nature of the church. He reasoned and persuaded people about the kingdom, the rule of God in this world. In Acts 26 verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, Paul. 
Some translations say, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? The idea, though, is that Agrippa understood that what Paul was doing was making a defense. He was reasoning with him, and he was trying to bring him to a logical conclusion, just like an attorney would stand before a judge and a jury, and an attorney would do his best to persuade the jury that his client is innocent. And he would bring up the facts, and he would bring up the evidence, and he would bring up all the different witnesses, and it's all to persuade. That's exactly the kind of reasoning that was happening when Paul stood before Herod Agrippa in Acts 26. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, the apostle Paul writes, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We need to persuade people to follow Jesus. We need to persuade people to adopt the belief system that is spelled out and that is delineated in the Bible. And we need to persuade people to do this because the Bible can do things and can tell us things and can reveal things that no other belief system is capable of revealing. And so what I want us to do with our study this evening is we ask the question, why should I be a Christian? And we ask it in the context of the society and the culture in which we're living right now. How do you have a conversation with a guy who's walking next to you at Costco or at HEB? And it's very obvious that he, by the way he's dressed, is a Muslim. How do you start a conversation with somebody like that? If you develop a friendship with somebody like that, how would you talk to them about Jesus Christ? Would you start talking about baptism? Would you start talking about what the one church is all about? Where would you start? Here are some suggestions. Number one, four foundational questions that you and I ought to think about, that everybody ought to think about. Four foundational questions. When we think about life and when we think about the world that we're living in, there are four questions that every belief system needs to grapple with. Number one, the question of origin. Where did I come from? Where did the universe come from? We live in this beautiful world. It works according to laws and it works according to uh, systems. And, and where did it all originate? Where did it come from? That's a question that people need to deal with in their belief system. But not only that, a second question, the question of meaning. Why am I here? What is my purpose in this world? That's a question that needs to be dealt with, whatever your belief system is. A third question is the question of morality. What is good and what is evil? And who decides? Who decides what's good and evil? Who decides what's right and wrong? That's a question that whatever belief system you've adopted, your belief system has got to give some kind of answer to that question. What's good, what's evil, what's moral, what's immoral? And who decides what's, what, what those things are? Who's the arbiter? Who's the one that determines? Fourth question, the question of destiny. The question of destiny deals with what happens when I die? What happens when you die? Where are we going when we die? What happens after we die? You know, some belief systems say, 
Nothing happens. You just cease to exist. Other belief systems say you're reincarnated and you come back in a different form. Other belief systems say you go and you stand before the judge of all the earth and he decides whether you are going to come and live in heaven forever or whether you're going to be sentenced to an eternity apart from him in a place called hell. Different belief systems, but all of them are grappling with the idea of destiny in one way, shape, or form. Now, observations about these questions. Observation number one, every belief system must in some way confront and deal with these questions. It happens all the time in the movies, and I know it's the way people are living their lives, but in the movies a lot, you'll hear people say things like, what do you think happens when you die? And you'll see the character kind of shrug and say, I don't know. And that's what a lot of people are doing with their lives, just ignoring the question, just shuffling the question along. Maybe it'll be more important later. But at some point, in some way in all of our lives, all of us at some point have to confront and deal with these questions. And whatever belief system you've adopted, whether you are a Buddhist, or whether you are a Muslim, or whether you are a New Testament Christian, or whether you are an atheist, you must in some way deal with those four questions. That brings us to our second observation. Not every belief system is able to deal with those four questions. That's very important. Not every belief system is able to deal with those questions. There are a lot of belief systems that cannot tell you where the universe originated. They can tell you a lot about why they think we are here at this point in history and why they think that the world looks like it does, but they can't really tell you where it began ultimately. There are a lot of belief systems that have no idea or no systematized concept of what happens after this world is gone. We need to deal with these questions, but not every belief system is able to answer them all. And then a third observation. Not every belief system deals coherently or consistently with these questions. What do you mean by that? I mean that sometimes a belief system might answer one question and then it might answer another question and the two answers really don't match. They don't make sense. They don't agree with each other. And so there is incoherence and there is inconsistency in the questions and the way they're being answered. And so as you think about those four questions, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, whatever you choose to believe in your life, it would be really good if you could find a belief system that was consistent and coherent that could answer those four questions. Secondly, as we turn our attention to New Testament Christianity, I'd like to share with you this evening four ways to examine it. I believe that the New Testament, I believe that New Testament Christianity can stand up to all the intellectual questions that people want to bring and level at it. I believe it can. And there are four ways to examine New Testament Christianity. Those of you who enjoy apologetics, these are four approaches to apologetics. If you want to give a defense of the gospel, if you want to give a defense of the accuracy and the nature and the veracity of New Testament Christianity, here are four approaches broadly that anybody 
Whether you're trained or not, anybody can open up the Bible and can look around at nature and can look around at the way the world works and can put Christianity to the test. Number one, there is proof. Giving proof. The idea is that it is reasonable to believe in Christianity. There are reasons for it. Open your Bible since you're in Acts. Open back to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. I said a moment ago, I believe Acts is one of the greatest apologetics books that you'll ever read. Because so much of Acts has to do with giving evidence. It has to do with making a defense. It has to do with persuading people of what's true and dissuading people from what's not true. And so in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible speaking about Jesus says, He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by people during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What's Luke doing in Acts 1-3? He's saying that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he gave infallible proofs. He gave evidence that he was raised from the dead by appearing to various people for 40 days. What's he doing there? He's proving that it's reasonable to believe in Christianity. It's reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Many infallible proofs. There are many such passages in Scripture. A second approach to examining Christianity is called defense. I am set for the defense of the gospel, Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. And the idea here is that it's not unreasonable, it's not irrational to believe in Christianity. There are a lot of people who would challenge that notion. Well, you just got to check your brain at the door. No intellect here. No thoughts, no, no, no academic integrity. Just get rid of it all if you're going to believe in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 26, verse 24, as Paul preached, one of those who listened to him said, Paul, you are out of your mind. You remember in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, they heard the apostles speaking in other tongues, and the Bible says they all kind of laughed and mocked and said, they're full of new wine, they're drunk. There are always going to be people who say, believing in Christianity, it's just, it, it's unreasonable. It's irrational. And so a part of our apologetics has to be showing the consistency. If this is true, then here is the result. There's logic. Approach number three, refutation. As we examine New Testament Christianity, refutation has to do with the idea that non-Christian thought is unreasonable. Take those four questions in that first point that we, that we gave just a moment ago, origin, morality, meaning, destiny. Take those four questions and apply those four questions to any belief system and see what you get. In Acts 17, verse 29, that's exactly what Paul was doing. When he was preaching to the men on Mars Hill, he was showing them that it is irrational to believe that idols are somehow powerful or capable of changing our destiny or that they are somehow going to bring any meaning or significance to our lives. He says, look, if we're God's offspring, Acts 17 verse 29, why do you think that he's like gold or silver or stone? That doesn't make any sense. What's Paul doing? He's refuting the inconsistency of paganism. It doesn't make sense. And then approach number four, persuasion. We've talked a lot about persuasion already in this lesson. 
Persuasion is what we do in our court system. If we're going to convict somebody of guilt in our court system in this country, the burden of proof is that we have to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There is a long history in law of that principle being the the burden of proof because it's the highest standard, the highest burden. And an attorney who wants to convict someone of being guilty of a crime has to prove beyond all reasonable doubt that this person is guilty of the crime. So it is with Christianity. It can be established as true beyond any reasonable doubt. In Acts 17, 31, as Paul concluded his sermon on Mars Hill, he said, God has given assurance that he's going to judge the world by raising Jesus from the dead. You know what Christianity does? It gives you verifiable historical facts and proofs. And then it says, by the way, here's your destiny. You haven't experienced your destiny yet because we're not in the future yet. You don't know yet what it's gonna be like on the other side of death because you haven't been there yet. But let me tell you, God is going to reveal to you what it's gonna be like. And you can trust what he says because what he says is true in all of these proofs. Christianity can be proved beyond all reasonable doubt. Persuasion. People can be persuaded as we examine New Testament Christianity. Four ways to examine it. And then with that in mind, let's ask this question third. Why should I be a Christian? Four reasons. Based on everything we've said tonight, tying all of this information together, Here are four reasons why everybody ought to be a Christian. Number one, because Christianity is consistent. It's coherent. Christianity can answer the foundational questions of life rationally and coherently. Origin, where did the world come from? God spoke it into existence. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, Psalm 148 verse 5. Where did man come from? God spoke him into existence. He created him out of the dust of the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The Bible gives answers to where we came from. Not only that, why are we here? Meaning, Isaiah 43, verses 7 through 10. Isaiah the prophet says, God has created us for his glory. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Why am I here? I'm here fundamentally to glorify God. He created me for his glory. Morality, good and evil, where does it come from? It comes from God's character. God didn't just arbitrarily decide that lying was wrong. Lying is wrong because lying is the very opposite of who God is. He's a God who always tells the truth, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Christianity answers questions about morality and all morality has to do with who God is, what he's like. That's why morality doesn't change. Just because people decide they wanna live their lives a different way doesn't mean that right and wrong has changed. Isaiah condemned people because they called good evil and evil good, Isaiah chapter five and verse 20. Christianity answers the question of morality and it also answers the question of destiny. What happens when we die? Wouldn't you like to know the answer? Christianity answers that. When we die, Jesus gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Paul talks about the great day, the day of judgment in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
God talks about the consummation of all things in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, when all who are righteous and redeemed will be gathered together to live with Him for all of eternity. And Christianity does that consistently and coherently, answers those four questions. Secondly, Christianity is verifiable. This book is not a book of myths and legends. It's not a book of fairy tales and wishful dreams. It's a book of history. And it gives historical facts and details, and they can be tested and they can be verified. And it's interesting because different individuals and different nations and different rulers, they are all fit accurately into their historical and cultural context. The Bible is accurate and it's verifiable. And not just that, but the proofs that Jesus rose from the dead, the proofs that the apostles really did go into all the world and preach the gospel, the proofs that Jesus Christ is divine, that he's God, those are verifiable as well if we'll investigate. Third reason to be a Christian, because it's sensible. Christianity properly deals with guilt and with the burden of sin. And it leads to nobility in life and character. Not only does Christianity deal with my guilt, my past, Christianity deals with my present and my future. It shows me what noble character, what godliness, what honoring and glorifying God looks like. That's what Christianity does. Let's talk about the guilt for just a minute. People feel guilty. People that live in this world, they feel guilty, or at least they did once. They might have killed all that. They might have seared it all off in their conscience, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But they, at one point in their lives, felt guilty. What do you do about that? What do you do about your guilt? Well, your belief system is going to direct you to do something about that. Some people, they go to a counselor, and the counselor says, you shouldn't feel guilty. Or they talk to their friends and their friends say, you just got to follow your heart. Don't feel guilty about what you're doing, about the choice you're making. Don't feel guilty about who you hurt. Follow your heart. Some belief systems say, if you feel, guilt, feel guilty, you ought to work harder. You got to do more. You got to work harder and invest more and, and make sure that you're really, really sincere about being in our religion, in our religious system. Christianity deals with guilt by saying, Jesus Christ paid the burden, paid the debt for your sin and guilt. He's taken away our sin and guilt, and He's provided freedom. Freedom in Him, freedom from sin and Satan and guilt. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it deals sensibly with it. And it also shows us what noble life and character is like. And then number four, Christianity is compelling because... When I think about my past, Christianity provides freedom from the sins of the past. When I think about the present, Christianity provides strength for the present. When I think about the future, Christianity provides genuine hope for the future because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But all of those things, all of them revolve around who Jesus is, and what he's done for you. 
And so, as we ask and answer these questions, why should I be a Christian? It's important for all of us to think about that question in the context of the society and the culture in which we live. And if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this. Jesus Christ came to this world because he loves you. It was love that drove him to this world. It was love that took him to the cross. It was love that kept him on the cross. And it is his love for you today that makes a way for you to be able to come to him and to find freedom from the guilt of the past and strength for the present and hope for the future. And brothers and sisters and friends, that's a message, a gospel message that our friends and neighbors need to hear, that we need to talk to, and we need to communicate because only in Christ, only in Christ are the four questions of life dealt with consistently and coherently and truthfully. Why be a Christian? Because there's no happier, there's no holier way to live. But in some ways, there's no harder way to live as well. Maybe you need to come to Christ this evening and to become a New Testament Christian. Confess Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. That's how a person obeys the gospel. If we can help you do that this evening, if we can help you by praying with you, if you need to respond, whatever you need, why don't you come all together? We stand and while we sing.